there a writing craft book on your bedside table? Has it been there for a while? Do you keep meaning to get past chapter two or chapter one or just the first page? Then the Words to Write By podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Renee. I teach composition and creative writing to college students. My background is in poetry, but I'm working on my memoir. And I'm Kim. I'm trained as a science journalist, but now I'm trying my hand at short fiction. Each week we'll be tackling a chapter of some well-known, but perhaps not so well-read, writing craft book. Together, we'll uncover brilliant insights, face the hard truths, and totally disagree when the author is wrong. This is our podcast, after all. And then, we're going to take what we learn and apply it to our own writing. By doing the book's suggested exercises. We're inviting you to read along, or just tune in for the Cliff Notes version. We're committed to improving our own craft, one writing advice book at a time, and we'd love for you to join us. So, Kim, what words have you written? I am in the process of writing an application to a writer's conference. And I need to write an artist statement, and I've banged my head on it a bit, but I'm counting on the deadline to just force me to write something. An artist statement is tricky because part of it will to toot my own horn and like really show that I'm awesome. But part of me also says, well, this is writing, and you can kind of tell when someone's blustering. And what I like about my writing is it's kind of got an honest, unassuming style, but it's really hard to say I'm honest and unassuming because that doesn't sound good either. <laughs> I don't know. How do you handle that kind of stuff? Sometimes I wonder when I'm applying to stuff like that, if they don't want me because I've got my MFA, they think, well, she's already had her MFA. Let's give this opportunity to someone else. And I totally understand that. At the same time, though, maybe they're looking for MFAs and then I just don't have enough chops. So you don't have enough publications and things. And they're like, well, she's got her MFA, but there's this other person who's already published a book and we want those names, you know? So I feel like I'm kind of in this middle ground. I'm guessing that basically... Any creative type out there that had to write an artist statement or a writer's statement probably feels a lot of that too. Yeah. Maybe they'll have the empathy when they're reading what I write. And Renee, have you written anything this week? I wrote something similar. (laughs) (laughs) I applied for a workshop slash retreat. And I must say, the only reason that application went through is because of my dear friend, Kim, who pushed and pushed and pushed. (laughs) And since I pushed you to do it, It's part of what's driving me because I'll have to face you if I don't put in my application. Oh, don't worry. I will start texting you. (laughs) It's coming back around. It's coming back around. (laughs) But no, it was really helpful. And I was up to like midnight doing it. It's like the only reason I'm up at midnight is because I said I would do it and I know I need to do it. And it's so wonderful to have a friend who actually cares about my own creative journey enough to bug me and make me follow through. Did you just submit first like chapter of your memoir or did you have to massage it to get it to the point you could submit it? What well, took so long? Um, it, it was the procrastinating. <laughs> that took so long. Yes. Procrastination takes such a long time. Totally. It was about 24 pages of submission. And so I had to find 24 pages worth. And I don't have a chapter that's 24 pages long. My chapters tend to be kind of short. They're like little punchy, very theme focused, at least the ones that are most successful. So I picked the ones that were most successful. And then I had to write a synopsis. That's what took most of the time. Oh, yeah. I remember I applied to that one and the synopsis was hard. When I got to the actual group, it wasn't like anyone actually ended up reading the synopsis, I don't think. I'm not sure. Maybe. I hope they don't read it. I don't want them to read it. (laughs) I 
didn't like it that much, but I had to do it. I followed through. Excellent. For my application, I could get 6,000 words and I was looking at my novella and there was a perfect stopping spot, but it was like 6,024 words. <laughs> so I went back in and I found little phrases that could be cut from a sentence and it wouldn't affect the overthought. So I just went in and cut 24 words out randomly because I didn't want to be over because in journalism, that's a big no-no. Yeah. It's a good discipline. It helps guide your editing. It's just hard. Sometimes you feel like you're stabbing yourself in the soul when you get rid of that line you really like. But at the same time, every time it gets short, it's like, ooh, it's more pithy. (laughs) Pithy. Pithy is a really important journalism word. Is it? Oh, yeah. I love that word. It's a great word. Pithy. (laughs) Today, we're wrapping up our series on John Gardner's book, The Art of Fiction. With a review of said book, find out what we found valuable and not so valuable about this much-lauded text. Plus, we have vocabulary. And we're excited to announce our next craft book, Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of Writing. To introduce this book, we have an interview with Phil Nichols, a Bradbury expert and host of the Bradbury 100 podcast. At this point, we have successfully gotten through Gardner's book. I suspect we may have read it more carefully than pretty much anyone in recent memory. And so we are going to give a full review and our opinions of his book. We boiled it down to its essence. I like to also think that Gardner, who died in 1983 or 1984, would never envision that his book would be discussed in a podcast on the internet. All this future history and we're reaching back to the past. I think he would have enjoyed the debates. Mm -hmm. He would have wanted to join in on the debates. Well, anybody to think that somebody in 30 years time 40. 40. To imagine that you wrote something and it's still being read in 40 years, pretty awesome. Yeah. He's continuing on in some way. (laughs) Having read the book, Renee, what would you say the book is about? What's in this book? I would say it's the basic things that you need in a story for it to be successful. It's not even know how to write a story. It's more like these are the elements that go into a story and there's a few things in there on how to do Mm-hmm. In more specific terms, how to achieve the reader's dream, that effect where you're reading the book and the reader has that movie playing in their head. How do you achieve that? It breaks down all of the things that go into achieving and maintaining that dream. That's all it really boils down to. It didn't have to be as long as it was. What do you think, Em? When you have a craft book, a writing craft book, it's a mix of technique this is how you do this. And inspiration. There are some books that are just technique only. These are the seven points of a novel. This is how you get to this point. This is how you get to this point. And then you've got the inspiration aspect. This is what you're drawing from. This is what you're creating. This is why you're important to the world. I've noticed this with talks as well. Part of what a speaker does is tell the audience that what they're doing is important. This book is about 20% technique and about 80% inspiration, like Gardner's comment that there are no rules. There are reasons for things, but no rules. And when he talks about the dream and how you create this in the reader's mind, or how you dive into yourself to pull out these aspects, that all that stuff is not immediately relevant to writing, but it gets in your head and it pushes you and it inspires you. Having inspirational writing books is really important when you're alone writing. It helps, it helps feed, what would you say? It helps feed your ambition. 
I don't know if it fuels your ambition, but it certainly informs your inspiration. It helps you have philosophical understanding. It does a little bit throw you into a community discussion of a community you may not have been aware of. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, this book read a bit like a textbook, but in a sense, it's not like a textbook. When I teach beginning creative writing, I pull from a variety of textbooks that say creative writing on them or introduction to creative writing. And there's not a lot of philosophy. It's this is how you do this. This is how you do this. Here's an example of this. There's an example of this, but it's not, why do we need that? What is it for? Where does it come from? And Gardner does include a little bit of that. In a way, he has more of a discussion, an agenda, an argument that other craft books don't have. So that that's the framework that I would have if I was presenting to somebody who says, well, what's in this book? But then the second part, you say, well, what did you think about the book? So Renee, what did you think about the book? Uh, I thought it was a bunch of pedantic crap. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, if somebody came up to me and said, should I read this book? I would ask, are you a teacher? Do you teach creative writing? And if they said, no, I am like the title suggests I'm a young writer, I would say, this book is not worth your time. You'll be confused. You might even be discouraged about writing. This guy has an agenda that you probably aren't aware of because you're just beginning to start your process into integrating yourself into this community. So I would stay away from this book for now. If they said that they were a teacher, I would say, go to those examples in the back and use the activities, but do not teach this book. <laughs> and if I saw this book on a syllabus, I would give that teacher dirty looks. And then I would warn my students not to take that class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we know how you think, Renee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you asked. <laughs> what I think is, unfortunately, it has not aged well. Not at all. It's 40 years old and all the good ideas it has have probably been incorporated into other people's perspectives. You don't need to go back and read this. And all its bad ideas really stand out. The gender huh. elements in the book, they were probably irritating back in the day, but now they just stick out like a sore thumb. Even if the philosophy and the gender stuff weren't there, the problem is that writing fashion has shifted. The things that he feels were critical and important then aren't as critical and important now. He had the whole idea of the separation between realism and the tale. There was things that were completely realistic or the ones that were fantastical. And we've shifted. There's lots of fantastical elements in stuff that's otherwise realistic. And it's completely acceptable now. Yeah, we've evolved. And likewise, a lot of the writers that he chooses aren't around anymore. So he's using a lot of references that won't make sense, especially since he doesn't choose to rewrite most of the passages about writers that he's quoting from. I think it's aged, but also it had a clear agenda for the time in which it was written. And not everyone was probably aware of the arguments going on in the faculty. There was a lot of people of color and women demanding to be included. And that was change he wasn't a fan of. And it was clear in his book. He was engaging in that debate at that time. Even if he wasn't doing it overtly, there's an underlying element. As we chalked up the number of references he had and the little comments that he makes all the way through, even giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying he wasn't conscious of it, he still was doing it. And he probably was conscious of it. I would say that if you were intent on picking up this book, 
you really would want to try to tackle chapter one, aesthetic law and artistic mastery. And chapter two, that's the basic skills genre in fiction as a dream. Those chapters seem to have the best content on this philosophy. And then probably skip down to chapter five, common errors, which was a pretty solid chapter. And perhaps chapter seven, the plotting. Whenever you get to the point where it stops making sense or really doesn't become relevant, just skip to the next section. Yeah. I think you get a lot of what people recommended of this book out of it that way. And then the exercises, like you said. Yeah. If you're a teacher, go through those exercises because there's some really good ones. There's ones I know I will teach. That first one in the very first episode where we talked about the superhero genres, that is an amazing inductive opener to a lesson on just story. It does a lot of great things for the students. The students can activate schema. They can share schema. They can discuss things and it's great. And then to help them show to tell, you know, the ultimate rule. I think it was the second one we did. Describe a lake, but don't mention the body, like a murder by a lake. And also his exercises are divided into classroom exercises and individual exercises. So there are exercises that you can give to a class and have a group of three or four people working on and then share it with the class. So it's designed specifically to be taught, not just somebody working through on their own. And it's easily adaptable to a workshop. So if you are not taking a class, but you have your workshop of writer friends and you are reading each other's work, these are great activities. You know, it's like, all right, turn in your submission. But on top of it, let's spend the first 20 minutes of our workshop elevating a genre, or let's spend the first 15 minutes writing a prompt that we're going to give you right now. And then we could discuss it and then we'll go into our workshop. All of them, they're actually very valuable. You know, we can put some more of them up on the Patreon site in case you don't want to buy the book, but want to see some of these exercises, you can go to the Patreon site. Yeah, some greatest tips. I'll put a section in there about teacher, like teachers would really like these ones. Mm -hmm. And then you can throw in, you know, what she thinks a workshop would be good for. Yeah, we'll do that on the Patreon site for members. I guess there is some value in the book. I don't necessarily think you need to read it because a lot of this advice is now commonplace. If you're the type of person that likes to have books and you're in a secondhand bookstore and you see a copy of this book and you'd like to have it, pick it up because there's fun stuff in the back with the exercises and it would fit on a bookshelf. It's got a nice spine to it. The Art of Fiction is a very good looking craft book to have on your bookshelf. Right. You can put the feather in your hat. I read John Gardner's The Art of Fiction. You can also just listen to our podcast. Oh, you can go to Patreon and read my show notes, and then you really don't have to read it because I have broken every little bit and boiled down every little bit of advice, whether helpful or not. And just to toot my own horn just for a second, The Common Errors. That chapter actually had good stuff in it really did break down some errors that you don't see mentioned elsewhere. For example, the introductory verbal phrases just didn't occur to me and didn't occur to Kim. And then we saw it and we're like, whoa, that helped me find an example from Game of Thrones. And now I have this great example when I'm writing a scene where there's a lot of movement or action, I can just read that paragraph and riff off of it to see how you show movement. So I did gain a lot from the common errors, but I have a traditional education in grammar and I know exactly what he's talking about. So I went on Patreon and I did every single error he talks about. And I gave examples and I broke them down into the grammatical units. That's worth two bucks. <laughs> I swear, you know, <laughs> that's a good deal. 
one other interesting element we can mine from this and from other craft books. Sometimes there's vocabulary or inadvertent vocabulary that just sticks in your mind after you're reading a book. So what words, like vocabulary that he used, did you? So there's there's a couple. One was verisimilitude. You know, when I started this book, I couldn't even pronounce that word. And now it just comes off the tongue. Verisimilitude. It is an awesome term. First of all, I'm seeing it all over the place now. Oh, yeah, once you see it. But second of all, when I'm reading something that doesn't have it, it's like, oh, the reason why I'm not enjoying this or the reason why it feels very cheap and poorly done is it doesn't have verisimilitude. It doesn't have all those details that make it real because the writers just like plowed on through or has it on the research. They just didn't plop us into what's going on in the story, like detail by detail. Mm-hmm. It's a show don't tell rule, but it has a little bit more context. Mm-hmm. More highfalutin. It's very highfalutin. Essentially, Gardner says that the specific details in stories, the verisimilitude that simulates real life is what achieves and maintains the reader's dream. And that is his main thesis. So his thesis hinges on that word, verisimilitude. The other word he uses that I thought was important was profluence. And when you say it, you have to have a monocle. And maybe if you have tea, you know, stick out your pinky and say it with a very haughty British accent. If you can raise one eyebrow when you do it, then you're, you're there. Profluence. Yes. Anyway, all it really means, which is actually a difficult concept, a whole chapter, a whole book could be written on this. It means a sequence of causally related events with important stuff rendered in scene. <laughs> so essentially, you take your characters, your plots, your themes, and then you have to give it sequential order of events that riff off one another. And they all have to seamlessly move through. It's movement in time and stuff happens. Profluence and verisimilitude together encompass the whole show, not tell. But they say some very specific things, whereas show, don't tell is always frustrating. Because on some level, I'm writing this book. I am telling you this by the nature of the way that I'm communicating with the audience. I am telling. Yeah. They're two concepts that help you identify whether you're telling or showing. You can look at the details that you're including, the verisimilitude, and you can look at the way you're capturing the passage through time in the scene. It's both a reader and a writer strategy. The writer has to do all of these things to get the reaction out of the reader. And then the reader gets to use these things to engage with the story. It's part of that recursive process that makes for a successful story. It makes for making the successful story and then engaging in this successful story. I liked his not quite so technical term of jazzing around. I think it's a great phrase for a certain type of writing that should go off the rails, but doesn't something that breaks the rules or the point where you get to the book and say, so at this point, there really wasn't much story, but there's a lot of jazzing around and it was fun. It's a nice catchphrase. It's not too serious. It's not too silly. I liked that phrase. Many years ago, before I had kids, before my friends had kids, I had a particular experience. We would get together for a book reading club. It wasn't a book discussion club. We actually would read the book chapter by chapter. We passed the book around and we had tea and cookies and stuff. And it was great. There was one time we had a fabulous book called The Night of the Avenging Blowfish. But in this book, there was a sex scene that was surprising and involved strawberries found in an unexpected place. And the <laughs> best thing about this 
was that of our group, we had one young man who was like 19, 20. Oh. He, he was the youngest of all of us. And he got this chapter. <gasps> I remember him reading hopefully through this and just the blush coming to his cheeks, but he just soldiered on and we got through it. Wow. The end result of this is that now I and all those people in the group have a phrase for unexpected sex scenes or unexpected surprises called strawberry moments. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We can say, I'm going to recommend this or we're going to watch this movie. Are there any strawberry moments in it? No, no, it's perfectly safe. Oh, okay. Nice strawberry moments. <laughs> The one other phrase that I think we should incorporate is when a person writing a craft book picks an analogy or a example, and they draw it out way past the point that it actually works, and they'd be better off just dropping it and going to some other method of conveying what they're talking about. I believe that is the Helen of Troy moment. As so painstakingly rendered in chapter four, interest and truth. Oh my God. Yeah. If your reader is just rolling their eyes. You have entered Helen of Troy moment. He really beat that example to death. Poor Helen. Poor us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to use that one later. The one piece of advice that he said that I thought was really helpful for me, and there weren't a lot because a lot of it's already been regurgitated in various different ways and better ways. But there's one piece that I have not read in another craft book, and I have not received this advice in any other class. And I thought, you know what? This actually makes sense. He said, as a writer, while you're working, work unit by unit. For example, focus on the description you're writing, but only focus on that description. Don't think about what's happening later, what the character needs to do. Don't try to look forward while you're doing the thing that you're doing. So say you get to your description, I have to describe this building, you know, because that's where my character is going to go into. Sit there and work on the building. Just work on that one description, then move on to the next part. And now it has to be a scene. Okay, now I am working within a scene. So you're working unit by unit. And to me, that was helpful because it's like, oh, I can kind of see how I'm always distracting myself looking forward or not just focusing on the one thing I need to do. And if I just focus on the one thing to do, then actually that would save me time. Right. And then once you've got it written out, you can go back and edit it and you can incorporate into that scene of the building some sort of foreshadowing what's coming, or you could have some characterization or you can do something else. But the trick of getting it all on paper is just to focus on the the unit that you need to work on. Yeah. Kim, was there one piece of advice that you took from this that Gardner said that you maybe never heard anywhere else or you thought was just helpful for you personally? The one I liked was there are no rules. There's just reasons that help me frame my evaluation of other people's work and my own work to get to the heart of why I disliked something. It works for me because I like analysis. I like pulling things apart. I like to figure out what it is that does or doesn't work. When I'm evaluating someone else's work and say, okay, I didn't like this. Why didn't I like this? I didn't like it because it didn't do this thing. And that's a good mindset to approach these things with. I liked that much better than, you know, there's all these rules you have to follow. And it also explained to me why when someone just pulls up a rule and doesn't give a reason for it, why I find it so frustrating. Yeah. If you just follow a bunch of rigid rules, you just get a formula and those aren't very fun. I mean, they can be, but that's not why we write. It's not why we write. No, no. Anyway. Anyway, that I think is a great summary of the book. I'm actually very pleased with it. 
Okay. And I will give a formal summary of the book on the website for everybody. And then on Patreon, me and Kim will give our favorite activities and I'll even throw a thing in there for teachers. We are going to do a really thorough job with Gardner so that we never have to think about this book again. Ever, ever again. (laughs) (laughs) If we're at a conference and we want to have a good Gardner rant, I totally will do that too. So if you want to get on Patreon and have a Gardner rant, we're totally in for that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Join us. (laughs) We're going to give ourselves a pass this week and we're not going to do an exercise. Instead, we're going to do something a little different. What are we going to do, Kim? We are interviewing Phil Nichols about our next writing craft book, Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of Writing. Phil is an expert on all things Bradbury. He did his PhD on Bradbury's screenwriting. He edits the journal, The New Ray Bradbury Review. And since 2020, he's produced the Bradbury 100 podcast. He also teaches film production and screenwriting. We are thrilled and grateful to have Phil sharing his expertise and insights on this book. Zen and the Art of Writing was published in 1994, but was actually a collection of essays written from the early 1960s. So what caused Ray Bradbury to put this book together and publish it in 1994? I think he had a number of kind of preliminary starts on it and probably just accumulated enough material by the 1990s to feel that it was a viable book. I think he actually finished the book in about 1989 and began circulating it to publishers. But as you say, some of the individual pieces within the book were decades old. Around the late 1950s and early 1960s, he started doing quite a few interviews in newspapers and a few for television and radio. And he was constantly contacted by people asking him about his writing method. So he wrote a few articles. There were three that were published in a magazine called The Writer in the, I think, late 50s, early 60s. And at some point, he wrote an essay called Zen in the Art of Writing Mm -hmm. uh, and published it as a chapbook. So just the one piece in a very slim book. And then later on, obviously decided to consolidate all of his pieces about writing under one cover. And that's where we get the book that we have today. So despite writing lots of different genres and receiving a lot of awards, most people still, when they hear Bradbury, think science fiction writer. Was this book largely for the science fiction community and his fans, or did it have a wider influence when it was published? No, I don't think at all it was for science fiction people. In fact, there's very little in the book that is specific to science fiction. There's a couple of essays in there which, well, maybe four or five essays, which were written as introductions to his books. And these were written like 30 or 40 years after the books had originally been published. So there's an introduction to Dandelion Wine written about 30 years after the fact. There is one for Fahrenheit 451 and one for the Martian Chronicles. So those address some of the science fictional aspects. But most of the book Zen is not at all about science fiction. It's just about the creative process. And did it have a good reception among like writer circle, writer community? I think so. I haven't tracked down specific reviews that came out when the book was first published, but it has constantly been cited and referenced by anybody who has interest in creative things. If you Google the title on the web, you will find loads of web pages where people are reviewing the book essentially, either formally or informally. So it has had a a long and strong influence uh, over probably a couple of generations of writers by now. 
Any book that's still being republished after 30 years is kind of a classic, I suppose. Yeah. And it's not as if it was published by a major publisher either. As far as I know, the publisher is a fairly small publisher in Santa Barbara. And he only published two books through that publisher. His fiction books were being published by mainstream publishers like Knopf and uh, Avon Books. But it didn't come out from his mainstream publisher. It was a small press that just published two books of essays of his, and this was one of them. So I imagine somebody said, there's not going to be a market for this book. And yet it's been very influential for, well, 30, 30 odd years, maybe. So let's say that you're at a party and you meet a really enthusiastic wannabe writer. Would you recommend this book? And why would you recommend it? I would recommend it if they showed an interest in unconscious creative processes. If they were looking for a nuts and bolts book that tells you how to structure a story or how to structure a novel or something like that, I wouldn't send them towards Bradbury at all. There are plenty of other craft books that are all about the nuts and bolts of beginnings of stories, endings of stories, character arcs, and all of that sort of stuff. And Bradbury doesn't really go into that. He talks much more about letting your intellect leave you while you're putting words on the page. And everything should come from the heart and from the emotion, almost unconscious as you're in the writing process. Later on, you can then bring the intellect in the editing stage and the rewriting stage. So if I was talking to somebody who I sensed was that kind of writer, I would certainly point them towards Zen in the Art of Writing. But as I say, if, if somebody's more interested in structure and character development, then there are, there are better books out there for that. Well, we just finished one of those books, so we're looking for something different. And I think this will scratch that itch. <laughs> yeah. Not that you're doing this, but if someone is looking for some kind of recipe for success, I don't think you get that from Bradbury at all, because he doesn't really give you a recipe. But what he's like is a really good cheerleader. He'll stand on the sidelines and really cheer out to you the things you need to do and inspire you to do them. If that makes you a good writer, then it's a success. That sounds fantastic. We're really looking forward to the book. <laughs> it's the kind of book where you do come away from it with things where you think, I'm going to have to try that. Now, some of them I have tried because I have done creative writing and I've written screenplays and I teach screenwriting as well. But there are some things that I've read in the book and I thought, that's a great idea, but never actually put it into practice. But you do come away from the book with this sense of, oh, there's some things that I should try. Is there anything you thought I would ask you that I did not ask you? I thought you might ask me what my favorite words of advice are from Bradbury. Oh, that's a good one. I think my favorite pieces of advice that Bradbury gives tend to be about this business of unconscious writing followed by intellectual editing of the work. Now, some people misunderstand Bradbury because one of the things he used to say is don't think. And he used to have a, a little placard on his typewriter that said, don't think. And people thought that meant that writing should be done without the use of the brain at all. And the whole process should be unconscious. But that's not what he meant. What he meant was at the typewriter or at the keyboard nowadays, but he did all his writing on a typewriter. At the typewriter, you don't think. You just let the words flow, even if you are writing rubbish. 
what you then do is you put the manuscript away and you come back to it later with fresh eyes and then you switch on the intellect and you begin assessing and evaluating what you've written and you rewrite it. Now, he very much emphasised that first stage, but I think he did himself a disservice because I've looked at many of his manuscripts and his draft screenplays and he is a very good structural rewriter of his own drafts. So you can see the work getting stronger and stronger with each rewrite. Any comments he makes about that two-stage process are the things that really excite me as a, as a writer and a teacher of writing as well. Can you do a quote offhand? <laughs> I can. I mean, the one that I use all the time, it's not very pleasant. To be honest, I don't know if it's actually in the book. It's probably in there as a paraphrase. But one of the things Bradbury said all the time was, as a writer, you should throw up in the morning and clean up at noon. <laughs> so that first draft should just pour out of you, regardless of how horrible it may be. But then you come back to it a few hours later, or usually he did it a few days later, because uh, he would always have three or four stories in process at any one time so he would do some throwing up writing of one then he would put that away and later that same day he would do some intellectual rewriting of another and he would keep multiple things going until he reached a stage where something was highly polished and he felt he could send it out into the world but yeah that's it throw up in the morning clean up at noon <laughs> that's great well thank you so much we are really looking forward to this book I've been enjoying your podcast. It's really interesting to learn more about Bradbury and to see all the people he's affected still today. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's great to have been here. Well, if that doesn't make you want to read Zen and the Art of Writing, I don't know what will. If you want to know more about Bradbury's life and works, check out Phil's podcast, Bradbury 100. For writers, I personally recommend episode 29, Ray Bradbury and Style. We'll have links in our show notes. We don't have a bonus podcast this week, but our Patreon members can find the exercises we mentioned on our Patreon site, Words to Write by Podcast. Patreon is a great way to support creators with monthly contributions. For just $2 a month, you get access to bonus podcasts and Renee's amazing chapter notes. For $5 a month, you can contribute your own take on the writing exercises and get feedback. If you want to check it out, we've got an accessible public post where we're sharing our first Bradbury. Tell us what your first Bradbury story was and how and when you discovered it. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like or review it on your podcast subscription site and recommend us to your writer friends. We'll be back here in two weeks for chapter one and chapter two of Zen and the Art of Writing. Words to Write By is produced by Renee Nelson and Kim Smita-Adam. Our theme music is Roll Back the Carpet by Cool Cat Music. Have a great day. Um, real quick, I hear a weird, is it me? I think it's you.